Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. The genius who shot the dark, evocative interiors of the Cone Brothers' Blood Simple also created the cityscape of Big and the intimacy of When Harry Met Sally. That cinematographer is Barry Sonnenfeld, who, as if to show off, followed up When Harry Met Sally with genre-defining images of terror and claustrophobia in Misery. Then, that same cinematographer left cinematography and became one of the most successful directors in Hollywood. The year after Misery, Sonnenfeld's directorial debut, The Addams Family, was released to huge box office success. Sonnenfeld went on to direct the brilliant mob comedy Get Shorty, the Men in Black trilogy, and some wonderful TV. His triumph in two different jobs on set is rare in Hollywood, especially when you consider how very different the roles of director and cinematographer are supposed to be. I called myself not a cinematographer, not a DP. I called myself the friend of the director. So I would just as easily talk to a director about an actor's energy, you know, how after lunch they're always, uh, the first takes are always too slow because everyone's eating lunch and all that. Or I would say, you know, I would think about how it was going to edit. So I, I was never just a cameraman. And some people really like that. Others who's, an example, who's an example of one that did like that? Okay, Danny DeVito, right. the Coen brothers, not Penny Marshall. Uh, Rob did. Rob Reiner did. Uh, I heard you in an interview say Penny said she was she wanted to fire you, but she, so who is it that said don't fire you? Danny. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah the, the second week of, of shooting on Big, every morning Penny started the day with a dozen White Castles and a carton of Marlboro cigarettes. And so the second Monday of shooting, she came up to me at 7 a.m. with the White Castle in her mouth and said, I tried to fire you, but they wouldn't let me. I said, who wouldn't let you, Penn? They wouldn't let me. She says, I called Danny because she was friends with Danny through, uh, what's his name, Jim Brooks, you know, th- th- that, that group. And she said, uh, I asked Danny if you were good, and uh, he said, you are, but I don't think so. So uh, that was how we got to the she meant it? God, yeah. She really didn't like she me. She was rigorously honest, Penny. She was very honest, but she she hid her honesty in mumbling. She was a genius in mumbling so that if you wanted to hear what she said, you did. But if you didn't want to hear, you could pretend you just didn't hear her. Which is what four-year-old children do. But in 1984, you do Blood Simple. That, is that the Coen Brothers' first movie? Yeah. So that's their first movie. Did you know right away that they had the recipe? Yes, but don't forget, it was my first day on a feature film set also. I had never shot anything before. Why did they hire you? Okay. Joel and I were at the same party. It was a party that was specifically people from Darien, Connecticut. All their uh, parents owned coal mines in Pennsylvania and islands in the Caribbean. And there were two Jews at the party, me and Joel. We didn't know each other at film school or anything like that. And we kind of smelled each other across the room. And we started to talk. And Joel and Ethan, his brother, had written a script for Blood Simple. And they were going to shoot a trailer as if it were a finished movie and then show it to dentists and doctors and investment clubs. 
because if you see a trailer, you can say, yeah, that looks like a real movie. So Joel said they were going to shoot a trailer and then use a trailer to raise money. And I said, I own a camera. And Joel said, you're hired. So I shot their trailer. Before there was video, there was 16 millimeter, which was the cheaper way to go instead of 35. And when I got out of graduate film school, I figured if I bought a used 16 millimeter camera, I could call myself a cameraman without being a dilettante because I actually had a camera. You know, the Vietnam cameras, the 16 millimeter cameras that looked like Mickey Mouse with mm-hmm. the big uh, round cylinders. So I owned a, a used one of those. And so Joel and Ethan and I spent a year raising the money for Blood Simple. And then we went down to Austin and shot it. And the first day on the set was the first day Joel, Ethan, or I had ever been on a movie set. But you had gone to film school. Yeah. With an eye but, toward what? With an eye to spending three years without having to be in the job market. I had no interest in film. I just thought if I was in graduate school, I didn't have to look for a job. You were killing time. Killing time. I really wanted to be a still photographer. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but I want to get back to this yeah, thing about... The Coens. So, so it's the first day on the set for all three of you. Yeah. You're down there in Austin. When you went into that process the first time and you came out the other end, what changed for you? Because you kept going. Yes, I, I must say everything changed after Blood Simple. Uh, it got great reviews, yeah. critical cult success, hit. cult hit. Uh, Rhea Perlman, Danny's wife, went into labor while watching Blood Simple, Danny told me years later. And suddenly I was a real cameraman. In fact, Janet Maslin, who wrote the review in the New York Times, said that the Cohen brothers were going to be huge successes. And she particularly, the whole last paragraph is about my cinematography, and it mentions me by name, and it was shocking. It was just phenomenal. Because Raising Arizona, when that came out, this is back in the days when I used to read Cineast Magazine uh-huh. and Premiere, which was kind Premier, of the, yeah. the people magazine of the movie business. They talked about Blanky Cam. Yes, there was a blanky cam, there was a shaky cam. The blanky cam was me laying on a blanket, holding a camera as I was dragged to across the floor. To be the POV the of the dog. That's right. That's chasing right. them. That's, that's blanky right. cam. Yes, that's blanky Barry cam. Barry Sonneville is laying on a blanket, being pulled toward, hurtling toward the victim. That's right. In the scene, and you are the POV of the dog. I am the POV. You know... I Spinny always, cam with a camera. Yes, yeah, when Nick Cage is sort of, we put Nick on this device and put mounted the camera to his back and spun him spun around. Spun him around. Uh, a shaky cam is a camera mounted on a 2x12 with me at one end and Joel Cohen on the other end and us running uh, because it's so long, a 2x12, we could run up to and then lift the board up over a fountain, a car, up a ladder, through a window, into Florence, Arizona's mouth. So uh, we did all these Your idea, tricks. his idea, or both? Sam Raimi's idea. Sam Raimi used the shaky cam a lot on his first Evil Dead, and Joel was the assistant editor on Evil Dead. But you know what? I always say that right now we could have shot Raising Arizona with modern equipment for 10 times the budget, and it wouldn't look any different. Probably not as good, to tell you the truth. Necessity is the mother. Is the mother. Um, When you're on the set with these people, how much do they know about lenses, shooting, and which do you prefer? The knowledgeable director in terms of cinema, or someone who just turns to you and say, what do you want to do? 
you want someone who has strong opinions because then you know that they know what they're doing. You don't want someone who says, do whatever you want. You really don't. Penny truly didn't know lenses. So I'd say, you know, we'll start on the rug and Tom's feet will come in and we'll boom back and then we'll discover that he's no longer a boy. Great. And then we, I line up the shot, show Penny the shot, and she goes, I see his feet, but where's his head? I said, well, you know, we'll reveal, well, she would say, well, yeah, but I want to see his feet and his head. And you go, right, but then you're wide because if you're seeing his feet and his head, he's six feet tall. And she'd go, I don't understand what you're doing. But it would let me do it. And it was it was a nightmare, it really was. And I didn't enjoy the experience, even though I got to put the camera wherever I wanted. And the movie was a hit. Huge hit. And it was the fourth movie after, you know, it was 18 again with Judge Reinhold. Uh, there was... Oh, God, there were a series of movies about body switching comedies that came out right before us. And we were the fourth one. And we assumed the movie was going to be uncuttable because it was it was really hard. What about Rob? He was great. And uh, we really enjoyed working together. I think it got a little bit um, tense at the very end of misery. Why? I'll tell you why. Rob was always saying I should direct. And I kept saying... I, I had no interest in directing. But I really, you know, Kathy Bates and I loved each other. Every every morning we would uh, meet and she would say, hey, Sonnenfeld, F you. And I'd go, F you, Kathy. And, you know, it was that kind of relationship. When And we both, and everyone hated Jimmy Kahn. Rob and I hated Jimmy so much that one, one day Jimmy said, hey, Rob, how far do you want me to crawl? And Rob said to me, Bah, how far should he crawl? And I literally spit on the floor. And I said, to there. And Rob said, crawl to the loogie, Jimmy. (laughs) Yes, crawl to the loogie, Jimmy. So, uh, uh, so, and then at the very end, the last two weeks of misery is when uh, when I told Rob I might become a director, I think the last two weeks... Suddenly, my friend of the director thing became a, oh, Barry thinks he's right. a director thing. It was, it was. Barry's changed. Barry's changed. And at the end of Misery, we didn't talk to each other for a couple of years. Right. And then Sweetie and I were at Mr. Chow's in Beverly Hills, a name dropping thing. And um, I saw Rob and Michelle eating a couple of tables away. And I went up and I said, hey, should we be friends again? And Rob said, absolutely. And just like that, and Sweetie was nervous. What's going to happen? Yeah. I said, but you know what? I'm Burying very the hatchet accessible. Yeah. Burying the hatchet is hard. Yeah. And it was like that. Who are actors you worked with who, when you were shooting with them as a director or a DP, that you went, oh, my God, what a great opportunity this is? Kathy Bates. Uh, Kathy Bates in Misery. In fact, Kathy was my idea. Rob wanted Bette Midler for the role. And I said, you know what? Uh, maybe. But you should see Kathy. I'd seen her in Night Mother on Broadway, and she was extraordinary, and uh, Rob hired her. So Kathy was Kathy was one of those actors that until the take, no matter how, if she was supposed to cry or be furious, would just joke around. There was no method acting. There was nothing. We'd just goof around, and then it would be action. Turn it on. And then turn it on. I hear Shirley MacLaine was like that. Meryl's like that. Oh, Meryl's like but, but I don't mean playful and silly, but Meryl is somebody that accesses what she wants to access very handily. I mean, Easily. She's just right yeah, there. Right. For the most part. Yeah. Uh, so Kathy was great. Um, 
when, uh, as a DP, you know, it's it's interesting because as a DP, I never really got actors and I never really understood what they needed. And I always felt they were a little bit of the enemy because they would rehearse looking this way. So you'd light with the key light being, you know, to the left. And then they would come in and shoot it and they would do something totally different. So I remember one night on when Harry met Sally, we had a very long walk and talk on West Broadway. It was probably a hundred yards and we laid track because I never liked Steadicam. Endless track. We had a 210 foot lighting condor, really huge setup. And it was Bruno, Carrie, Billy, and Meg. And it's a four shot with no coverage. And during the rehearsals, they they didn't know their lines, so they're talking slowly. And But now they go to hair and makeup, they've learned their lines, and now they're racing through it, and they're going 80 feet past where I'm lit. And I, I remember going to Rob, and I, I said, hey, Rob, you know, they're, they've got to stop here and hit their mark. And and Rob would try to get Meg to hit her mark, and it never worked. And I, I realized, here's what to do. So instead of saying to Meg, can you really hit that mark? I said, hey, Meg, stop wherever you want. If you happen to stop here, you're lit beautifully. And then she would stop there every time. So I had to make it give her a reason why she wanted to stop there as opposed to why I needed her to stop That's there. incredibly significant to me because I always prided myself on what I called my triangulation with the camera. Mm-hmm. The joke version is I put my hands on the shoulders of the guy and I'd be like, now, Bob, listen to me. And I jerked him out of my light. Right, 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 but right. Jesus right. Christ, Bob, you've got to listen to me. You've got to understand. And you so I'd slide this, him over. You know, yeah. Whatever I would do to accommodate to get the shot. That's right. At what point do you begin to really burn with the passion, if you will, to direct? I had no passion to direct. I was in L.A. finishing the color timing on Misery, which ended up being the last movie. No, no, I'm sorry. It was the last two weeks of shooting. I remember it now. And Sweetie and I were at the Four Seasons Hotel on Doheny watching the Indianapolis 500 in bed. And uh, the phone rang, and the front desk said, Scott Rudin has just dropped off a script for you. He, he wants you to read, read it and meet him at in two hours at Hugo's. I don't know if you ever eat. Of course, yeah. I went to Hugo's all the time in West Hollywood, yeah. The pasta with the scrambled egg stuff. Ever, yeah. All the Hugo's. Yeah. Hugo's. Love Hugo's. So, uh, and there was this note saying, read this, I want you to direct it. It wasn't Adam's very family. good. Adam's family. That's right. Uh, I read it. It wasn't very good. I said to Sweetie, this isn't good. She says, you'll make it better. Scott will make it better. I had known Scott a little bit, and this is why he wanted me to direct it. He went to Terry Gilliam and Tim Burton, and they both passed on Adam's family. Scott told me at lunch he would rather have a visual stylist, and he was the head of Paramount Productions when I shot Big and and Raising Arizona. So he knew I Could could shoot. And had a very specific point of view, like you were saying, that the camera can be sort of a character in the show, you know? So he said, uh, all the good directors passed, so I figured I'd give you a chance. <laughs> which, which is very All Scott. the people I wanted are dead. That's right. That's and I've right. been there before. Now, I directed one movie. I hated every minute of it. Mm-hmm. I hated it. Here's what I did. I looked at, and you, you mentioned him earlier, but I looked at what Jan de Bont did. Gordon Willis shot a movie called uh, Windows. Bill Fraker shot Legend of the Lone Ranger. These are all famous DPs. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Alonzo, who had shot 
Chinatown and Farewell, My Lovely, great cameraman, shot FM. None of them directed a second movie. And the reason was they all moved up their camera operator to DP, which means they didn't want to give up the camera, right? So by just not hiring a good cameraman, they would still be in charge of the camera. They didn't do for a DP what a director had done for them. That's right. right. That's right. So what I did is I said, I need the greatest cameraman I can find, so I'll never say, shouldn't the 10K go over there? So I hired a really great, cranky guy named Owen Roisman, yeah. who shot, you know, um, oh, Tootsie and millions of many other great, great films. Many great films. And I said to Owen, I said, look, I'll never get involved in your lighting. I just want you to agree to a couple of things. One is I want Angelica Houston, who played Morticia, to have her own motivated light. I don't care if she's standing right by the window. That's not where the light should come from. She's in another zip code. She's in another zip code. She should look like a Harrell. So Owen loved the idea. And I said, and I would like to design the shots because I know how I'm going to edit it. And he said, makes it easier for me. So to this day, from Adam's family through a series of unfortunate events, whenever I say cut, check the gate, even though there's no longer a gate to check, the uh, camera assistant hands me the viewfinder, and I line up the next shot. Who, and, who cast Adam's family? What I'm saying is when you're there, your first film with Rudin, when you're in pre-production making the film, does he defer to you and you wanted Raul Julia and you wanted this one and this one and this one? Okay, so... We agreed on Raul and Angelica. We totally disagreed on Wednesday. I really wanted Christina Ricci, and he wanted this other girl who had hyperthyroid eyes that looked more like Raul Julia. And luckily, David Rubin, who was a casting agent, uh, agreed with me. But here's how I dealt with Rudin. Rudin, I lo- here's my quote about Rudin. I love him, and I wish he were dead. Yeah. Um, uh, you know Nick and Tony's right, in of course, the ham, of, of course. course. Yeah. I saw Robert Benton eating dinner with his wife, Sally, and I knew that he was flying the next day with Scott Rudin to London for Nobody's Fool. And I went up to Benton. I'd never met him before. They were both at Nick and... We were finishing dinner at Nick and Tony's. Great they were guy, starting. Benton. Great guy. Lovely. And I went up to him. And I said, excuse me, you don't know me. My name's Barry Sonnenfeld. I just wanted you to know that I know you're flying to London tomorrow with Scott Rudin. I just want to tell you that even though you're a brilliant director, places in the heart, Kramer versus Kramer, mm-hmm. all these movies, I so want your plane to go down in a flaming wreck where you survive, but Scott Rudin dies. <laughs> and literally, he looked at me and said, sit down, young man. And what's your name, sweetie? Oh, welcome. And we became friends for decades. Yeah, great guy. Uh, so Rudin was, Rudin was uh, very difficult, very brilliant. Mm-hmm. He really didn't care about the budget. He didn't understand shooting visually. I remember there was a setup that I wanted to play in a master because sometimes if you look at screwball comedies like His Girl Friday, Sturgis, Sturgis, comedy plays in a master, right? You see action and reaction in the same shot, right? Yeah. Let me out of here or throw in a magazine. My favorite line in a Marx Brothers movie when Crouchy gets thrown into a bathroom. But in any case... um, so I set up this shot, and it only worked without inserts or close-ups because, like Charles Adams's cartoons, you want the audience to find the joke, right? You don't want to say, here's a punchline in a close-up, and Rudin insisted I cover it. 
I said, okay, well, let me get the master perfect so I don't have to have the coverage. And I got it perfect, and I moved in for a close-up, and he said, what are you doing? I said, well, you want me to cover it? He said, no, it's perfect. So he just has to be proved. To show him. To show him. And the secret to working with Rudin is to out-juvenile him. So when (laughs) we had a fight in pre-production, I would remove all of his couch's cushions and build a fort and crawl into the fort, (laughs) close the last pillow, and yell, I can't hear you, I'm in the fort. And what was great about Scott is he totally accepted the sanctity of the fort. He would never pick up a pillow and say, schmuck, there is no fort. He'd scream, get out of the fort. But he would never just pick up a pillow. But he respected the fort. He respected the fort. And eventually you'd say, all right, fine, just get out. We'll, We'll talk about it. I just worshipped Raoul. I mean, was he everything that I thought he was? Yes, he was. He he loved being alive. He loved himself. He loved acting. He loved women. Uh, I, 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 I remember uh, asking him, we were having dinner one night uh, in L.A., and I said, would you ever direct? And he said, why would I want to direct? I'm an actor. Yeah. And he meant it. And I remember on Adam's Family Values, there's a scene where Raul is really angry and he's throwing darts and Lurch is holding the dartboard and moving it around because Raul is so angry he's miss, you know, he's not throwing it right. So Lurch is like holding it up and he keeps getting bullseyes, but it's knocking off of walls. And we, we rehearse it and Raul said, Barry, l- let me ask you a question. Uh, you know, Gomez is a perfect marksman. Even if he's angry, he would hit or drunk, (laughs) he would hit a bullseye every time. It wouldn't bang off of walls and lamps and Lurch wouldn't have to move. This is Gomez. Gomez doesn't need that. And I go, well, here's the thing, Raul. And he said, right, the thing is, it's not funny. So let's keep going. So he wanted me to know that what we were doing was wrong. And that he was so smart, he knew it was wrong, but then he was okay with it. So he was fantastic. When I see that film, Joan Cusack. Yes. I mean, who in the world is funnier than Joan Cusack? Nobody. Nobody. And I said to Joan, because Joan has an amazingly hideous laugh. It's like a cackle. And I said to her, and she was single at the time, I said, someday someone is going to fall in love with you because of that laugh. And once they marry you, they're going to hate you because of that laugh. She was so game and so winning. And her whole Malibu Barbie speech is brilliant. And my favorite moment is uh, Joan blows up her house to kill Fester. And there's a close up of her sort of weeping, and without any cut, she goes from weeping to Rolls cackling. right into the cackling. One of Rolls my favorite right scenes. Into it. When yeah. she says, officer, my husband was in the house. That's right. And she does the laugh. Then she comes out of the car, help, help. I, I, I love that movie. Thank you. I love, I love, love, love that movie. Another Hollywood double threat is the man Stanley Kubrick persuaded to leave a promising acting career and work behind the scenes instead, Leon Vitale. As a favor to Kubrick after his star turn in Barry Lyndon, Vitale was doing some casting work and location scouting for The Shining. The master director was pleased. Towards the very end, just before we came home, he rang me and, uh, and he said, what are you planning on doing after you finish here? And I said, I don't know. He said, well, okay, then you're coming to London. And that was it. I mean, suddenly I'd I'd got a a job. (laughs) 
you can get a link to my full interview with Leon Vitale and the man who made the documentary about him by texting Vitale. That's V-I-T-A-L-I to 70101. Barry Sonnenfeld gets personal. Coming up. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. Now, back to my conversation with director Barry Sonnenfeld. You're a funny guy, and I'm wondering when you did, which I actually liked, I mean, even though there were some mixed reviews and you had mixed success with Wild Wild West, I liked Wild Wild West. Wow. Someone I, had to. I, I, no, I, I did. I mean, right. I, when that movie came out, I watched it, and I go, there's a lot of good things in this movie. What was it like for you working with uh, His Royal Highness Kevin Klein? Here's the challenge with Kevin. You need one straight man and one funny man. You need Gracie Allen and George Burns. You don't want two Gracie Allens. So, Will Smith. Will was very much on board with that theory. One straight man, one funny man. And Kevin refused to not be the funny guy. Will was supposed to be the funny guy. Kevin was supposed to be the Artemis, the straight, straight ahead guy. So, because Will knows the way I like to work so well. After a week, Will came up to me and said, hey, Baz, he called me Baz, um, I think I'm going to have to be the straight man. And I said, I think you are too. So that was one challenge. The other challenge was that we had Kenneth Branagh playing Loveless. The challenge is that Kevin Klein and Kenneth Branagh both think they're the greatest living Shakespearean actor. <laughs> Therefore... <laughs> One of them Did they is, have Shakespeare offs? They, Kevin would literally come onto the set saying, a rose by any other oh, name. Pardon me, <laughs> thou bleeding piece of earth, but I am meek and gentle with these butchers. That would be Kevin. Yes. That would be Kevin. So it was a real challenge. There are things about that movie I really like, but it was, it was hard because Kevin was difficult, and Kevin felt he was slumming. Kevin really didn't want to be there. Aww. He didn't want to be in a comedy, that kind of comedy. He's a really great actor, and he's a really funny actor. Was he enthusiastic about the film in the beginning, and then he found that it was something else? or No, I think it was... It was a paycheck from the get-go. It was a paycheck. It was, and it was a big paycheck, and it may be the first time he ever, and probably the last time, he ever got some sliver of gross. Right. So they thought that was going to like move him up. Incentivize him. Yeah. yeah. Um, you and I have a profound thing in common. You may not find that that profound, but I do, which is that my grandfather, who had no money, but was a philatelist and a numismatist of a very, you know, certain level. He didn't have any money, but he would find liberties and mercury dimes and put them in the books. And I had a big box, a couple boxes of these coins that my mother then sold. Right. And uh, she goes and she sells these things. And, and it was one of the most painful moments of my life when my dad, who his father had given me boxes mm. of first day covers my grandfather traveled around because what he wound up doing was he wound up being a consultant a legal consultant to racetracks he gave me a box of these first day covers yeah. but boxes of them there were there were hundreds of them and he collected these coins and my mother sold all the coins right and then my dad turned to me one day i'll never forget when my dad he wanted to see i can't i can't i, I to this day i can't understand what he wanted to put me through because it was a test to see would I throw my mother under the bus. And they were estranged at that point. And my father looked at me and goes, 
That box with all those coins that my father gave you, that's still upstairs in your closet, isn't it? And, wow. like a, and like a movie, like a horror movie, like a Hitchcock movie, I was like, yeah, yeah, it's all there. Uh, last I looked, it's all there. Right. And he just stared at me like, she got you too. Right. She got you too. You're lying to me. And I know what she's been doing. And, and, and your parents sold your coin collection. Right. Uh, my, I, and you remember the coin collections, those books yes. with the, the semicircles so that the, the coin the windows, could fit yeah. in? Yeah, exactly. So I had 22 silver dollars. They were all from the 1800s. Each one was worth between 25 and 50 bucks. We had no electricity. So dad took my 22 silver dollars, went to Con Ed and used them as dollars to get our electricity back on. But of course, it was always, hey, where are my silver dollars? I don't know. I think Raphael must have stolen them. Raphael was my neighbor one flight below, my best friend growing up. So there was a lot of weird stuff like that. Same thing with me. With My, my sister said, I want to borrow the ring that grandpa gave you. I was a teenager. I said, what do you mean? She goes, that gold signet ring that said ARB, not worth very much money. And she goes, I want to wear it to my prom. I said, you want to wear my ring? She says, yeah, I think it's a very beautiful ring. It's grandpa's initials, too, and I want to wear it. She comes back from the, from the prom next year. She said, I lost, lost the it. ring. Yeah, right. And, of course, that got hocked. Right. But your family life is complicated. Everyone's family's life is complicated. I don't think, you know, my, my theory, and my wife hates me for saying this, is that no one asks to be born. And it's it, you'll never do a good enough job as a parent, no matter how hard you try. I'm okay, but I'm not great. My parents were kind of lousy. They were good people, but terrible parents. But uh, so I had my issues. You know, my both my parents were narcissistic. My father had a lot of affairs. My mother was deeply depressed. Would constantly threaten suicide. You know, she. How said, many siblings you have? Only child. Jewish, only child, only not child. good. You know, the the title of the book, Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother, is based on the fact that uh, I was uh, at a Madison Square Garden at the first Peace concert. It was 2.20 in the morning. Jimi Hendrix is warming up for the second time. And over the PA system, as Jimmy is about to start playing, comes the announcement, Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother. <laughs> and being the garden... You know, they're very good at chanting. And I was in the upper deck, you know, the blue seats. So you hear, Barry, Barry. No. How old were you? 17. I was a senior at Music and Art High School. And it was 2.20 in the morning. And, that's and your family key. lived where? Where were you? Washington in Heights. Okay, okay. Washington Heights. And so I immediately stand up so everyone knows it's me. And I'm now weeping because I know my father is dead. And that means I'm going to be living with my mother for the rest of my life because she can't function. Um, so I get to the payphone. I put in the dime. I called Wadsworth 86160. My mother is crying because she thinks I'm dead because it's 2.20 and I promised I'd be home by 2. Right. Hi, mom. Who died? I thought you died. <laughs> well, did they tell you the concert was still going on? Yes, but they couldn't confirm you were there. In the garden. Yeah. In the garden of 19,600 people. But my mother had this amazing strength through weakness ability. I mean, the fact that someone could reach anyone at the garden right, right. and then convince them that it was so important they had to page me while Jimi Hendrix is about to play, that's pretty 
amazing. My version of that quickly yeah. is, is that there was a neighbor of ours. She was getting a degree in something, and she administered IQ tests to the children in the neighborhood. She went to my mother. She said, your son tested at a genius level uh, right. for his age. I mean, I'm seven years old, so what right. the fuck does that mean? I'm right. a genius. I can pick out the, 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 yellow, the yellow tennis ball from the white tennis right. ball. But later on... I'm playing baseball. This was the bane of my existence, my OCD. Mm. There are two men on base, and the guy hits the ball. And I wake up when the ball goes thwack on the ground right next to me. And the guy gets an inside-the-park home oh, run, right. and, they, and they, they take the lead. And I go trotting into the dugout, and the coach looks at me and goes, Good job, Baldwin! Right. And my mother was in the bleachers, and of course she said, Don't talk to him like that. He's a genius! <laughs> and the coach was like, Oh, he's a genius, all right. <laughs> Here's my IQ story. Okay. My mother was a teacher, she didn't want to lie about my IQ. So she got an IQ test a week early, brought it home, had Chuck Levy, who was a math expert in this person, go over the test with me so I could score a high mark so she could say I was a genius without lying. So she cheated and actually just got the IQ test a week early. And by the way, given that I had the IQ test a week early, it's not that great a number. Yeah. But but wait, do you have OCD also? I have, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm someone who at times when I'm stressed, you know, I always remember like one critical example, and my, my, my wife Ilaria is always on me about this, is uh, I'm the kind of person who like we'd be in the hallway getting ready to go downstairs and the car is waiting to go to the airport mm -hmm. and I'm rearranging the coins on the table, on the entry hall table, making sure they're all neat and in order. I'm always straight, and it comes from, and all of that comes from coming from an unbelievably messy home. In my child, in my book, mm -hmm. my memoir, I said, if you came to my house when I was a child and you walked into the house, you would have thought that the people were running an illegal laundromat in the house because there were wicker and plastic baskets and laundry just tumbling out of all of them because my mother could never keep up with all the laundry of having six kids and no help. Six kids. The house was in disarray all the time, and that damaged me and like I'm obsessed with neatness and cleanliness and I want my house clean and uh, I, I have to have everything in order. There's another three words for why you might have OCD. Go ahead. Unconscious narcissistic rage. Right. Just yeah. so you know that also <laughs> brings on OCD. Yeah. Sciatica, back pain, OCD. OCD. I'd rather not get into CM of CM. I would. Because, because I'd rather people read it in the book. I mean, right. there's, some, there's some tales in the book that are, but what I will say is whatever the difficulties you had in your childhood, and I encourage people to read because you go into some pretty tough details about what happened to you, you are that uncommon person who you let it roll off your back and you're like, what am I going to do about it? Right. Am I going to let that ruin my life? Right. You know, do you find that that's a part of your nature, that you walk away from difficulty pretty easily? I don't walk away from difficulty easily. I ruminate. I uh, relive stuff until recently. Uh, uh, that, uh, you know, what we're talking about is uh, sort of my parents let a— my mother's cousin, who was a child molester, live with us for a bunch of years, knowing he was a child molester, which is— kind of horrific. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, in that particular case, I'm sure I'm a little screwed up because of it, but it's happened, it's gone, it's passed, and I've moved on. And, uh, you know, I, I think that life is surreal and I have a very quirky attitude towards life. I, I try to find comedy wherever I can. 
surrealness wherever I can. I, I will say that because of my weird parents and all the threats of suicide and all the times we didn't have electricity or rent money or Lou the Butcher money, I'm a control freak. I get to the airport. When you were saying that the car is waiting for you and you're rearranging, that made me so uncomfortable because I know I would have already been at the airport four hours while you were still arranging dime. I, I need to get to the airport four or five hours early. I say to my wife, look, take a different car. I'll, we'll pay for two cars, but I just need to do this. And so she'll say, all right, I'll do it. Because you're either reading your iPad at home or at the United Lounge. Right. But if you're at the, at the airport, you're not worried about, uh, you know, uh, three flat tires and traffic on the LIE and all that stuff. Um, what are you working on now? Um, You've done some TV. Yeah. Uh, I loved, I did three years of a series of unfortunate events for Netflix uh, in Vancouver, uh, and it was the best experience of my life. And I'm about to do something with your good friend, Lauren Michaels. Uh, he has a six-part uh, series that's a musical for uh, Apple. And it looks like I'll be uh, directing those six episodes. So uh, A musical? A musical. Original material? Uh, original material by this guy, uh, Cinco Paul, who uh, has written only million-dollar animated movies every, you know— uh, the Min Minions and Despicable Me and all the uh, uh, secret hit, uh, story of pets, all these movies. So um, this will be like something really different for me. So we'll see. Um, in your wife's career in the not-for-profit world, she's listed on her uh, the letterheads as Susan Ringo. Yes. Uh, who gave her the name, Sweetie? I did. I just started to call her Sweetie, and... Uh, and I would refer to her as Sweetie, and so Grips and Electrics would say, how Sweetie, and how Sweetie's uterus, she had problems with, <laughs> stuff like that. And I was a very unusual cameraman in that it was all about me. It wasn't about the director, it wasn't about the actors. On the call sheet, the longer I was with, without Sweetie, when I was like in LA shooting Throw Mama from the Train, the longer I was without her, the crew would know I would be in a bad mood. And when they heard that Sweetie was coming in a week, there'd be a picture of a car with Sweetie's head, and the call sheet every day had a map of the United States and where Sweetie was driving from New York because they were just knowing that as soon as Sweetie arrived, Barry would be better. So that's who I am. I'm an only child of Jewish persuasion. That was Barry Sonnenfeld. His new memoir in which he tells stories from his most famous sets and explores his very messed up childhood is Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother, available now. This is Alec Baldwin. Here's The Thing is a production of WNYC Studios.